Tonight is going to be a study of questions and answers. Uh, a couple months ago, we began a series of lessons where we ask, you ask questions, and I attempt to try to answer them from the Bible. In many ways, that's good for me because it provides for me the topic upon which I'm going to preach. I have enough for about two to three months, but I know that some of you mentioned to me this morning that you have questions, and if you do, please do this. Either write it down on one of the cards or a sheet of paper and give it to me, or you can email me the question and then we'll try to put it in the list of those questions to be discussed in the future. I do like this opportunity because it deals with some issues, some questions which are upon your mind. And you see, questions are both normal and expected. When you go to the Bible, you can find people who are interested and they do ask questions. I think about the Ethiopian eunuch and how good of a man he was. And when Philip studied with him, he says, who does this passage speak of, the prophet or some other man? And because of that, he was given the opportunity to preach Jesus to him. But answers that are given must be given from God's Word. You know, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. When someone asks you a question, be sure that you give them a book, a chapter, and a verse so that the answer is not I think or I suppose or I believe, but this is what God's Word says. There are three types of questions, and I'm going to continue to mention this each time because I want you to think in terms of categories. There are some that are textual. When someone asks, I was reading the Bible, and I read in this verse this point, and we're going to address one of those in our second question tonight. The others are topical. That is, they deal with some biblical issue, and what you have to do is go to the Bible and say, I want to go from Genesis to Revelation, and I want to see those passages which address that topic. That will be our first question tonight. And then there are some that are practical. That is, I learned something from the Bible. How is it that I can fulfill that? And we will use one of those perhaps next month. Question number one, is it sinful to pray to Jesus? Now, I want you to think about that. Is it sinful to pray to Jesus? I will tell you that this question has been debated a lot recently. A number of our brethren have written on the subject. They have addressed the subject, and in fact, one periodical even had what I call a mock debate on the topic where two different people were supposedly debating the issue. Uh, they didn't use names. They called one of them Brother Beta and one Brother Delta. And uh, they had the written debate, and I thought addressed a number of issues. Let me tell you how I'm going to approach the topic tonight. The first thing is I want to do is to go to the Bible and look at the example of Jesus. I believe that's very important as we approach the topic. Number two, I want us to look at the explicit instructions that Jesus gives. What does he tell us to do? Is there any instruction in the Bible that Jesus gives that tells us what we ought to be doing on this regard? 
And then number three, to look at some of the exceptions that have been asserted to offer the opposing viewpoint. Let's begin, first of all, with the example of Jesus. If I do that, I have to go to Matthew chapter 6. And do you remember that the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And in Matthew 6 and verse 6, Jesus said, But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, now listen carefully, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's just a few verses later in verse 9 when the Lord is giving them the model prayer. He said, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, here's an example of Jesus showing them this is the way you do it. Chapter 7 and verse 11. If then you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. But now you can go a little bit further and say, but now when Jesus prayed, to whom did Jesus pray? We see him in a number of places praying. And I will suggest to you that tonight's lesson is only just a small portion. In fact, you could spend a year studying just the prayers of Jesus in the book of John. So I want you to understand we're only just addressing a small portion. But when we get to Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is about to be betrayed by Judas, will be beaten and ultimately put on a cross and killed. He knows the events that are about to take place. And Matthew records, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, the second time, he prayed, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father. You get to verse 53, and there are people ready to Maybe we ought to do something. He says, or do you not think that now I can pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? So I think it's quite obvious what Jesus did and what Jesus modeled for others to do. But when you start asking the question, why? You go to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. I want you to understand, why did Jesus pray to the Father? Because the Father was the only one who could save him from death. Jesus had submitted himself. Now it's the Father. The Father could have sent 12 legions of angels. The Father could have saved him. But it says he was heard because of his godly fear. 
I think it's important that you look at to whom Jesus prayed and why did he pray. But now one might say, but, you know, I see that as an example, but did Jesus say anything himself about this issue? And what I want you to do is to look, go with me to John chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16. And let me, while you're turning there, to give you a little background. Our Lord, in John 14 through 16, has just celebrated the Passover meal, establishing the Lord's Supper. It is now going to be this last opportunity to reassure his disciples and prepare them for his departure. He's going to tell them a number of things. You remember the first part of John 14. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Look at verses 13 and 14. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything... Now listen carefully. In my name, I will do it. Get to chapter 15 and verse 16. And Jesus is saying, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And listen carefully. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you. I would suggest to you, you need to notice a transition that is taking place of what will happen after Jesus leaves this earth and what they will say. But now the clincher comes in chapter 16. And let's look at verses 23 through 27. And Jesus says, And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you that whatever you ask the Father in my name... He will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. Now listen carefully. Don't pass over this. And I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I suggest to you the explicit teaching of Jesus is, I want you not to ask me, I'm going away. I want you to ask the Father, and I want you to ask the Father in my name. Now, the phrase, in my name, is not just a, a sign-off of a prayer. It is the same as if a policeman at your door says, open in the name of the law. It's by his authority. He gives you the permission. He gives you the right. We are children of God. We now have the privilege of being able to speak to our Father in his name. But you see, as you go on, you have to realize that some people say, yeah, but that doesn't deal with everything. In fact, here's the phrase that I seemingly hear from other people. I know what Jesus did, and I know what he taught, but... And here are the exceptions that people want to assert. 
Well, what about Stephen? If you go to Acts chapter 7 and verse 59 or verse 55, and verse 59 is where we're going to key on, but you remember that Stephen had spoken and used an eloquence to the degree that they were not able to resist the wisdom by which he spoke. They couldn't resist what he was saying, and so all they could do was to try to kill him. Beginning with verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now pause for just a moment with me. What you observe is a vision. Stephen is able to see into heaven. He's able to see Jesus. He's able to see the Father. And said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Verses 59 and 60. What you have is Stephen specifically addressing Jesus in heaven. And they're saying, see, there's prayer to Jesus. Let me point out to you, this is a vision where Jesus is personally visible to Stephen. The second thing I would point out to you, if simply asking Jesus when you are in his presence, as Stephen evidently was in this vision, proves that it's all right to pray to Jesus because you ask something from him, you better be careful because what proves too much proves nothing. I want you to notice Revelation 10 verses 8 and 9. He said, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will taste sweet as honey in your mouth. Notice, John asked the angel something. Well, if it proves it's all right to ask in a vision from someone else to pray to them, then that would mean it would be all right to pray to an angel. If not, why not? I don't think any of us are going to say it would be all right to pray to an angel. What about Paul? If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, I want you to listen carefully. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And what it is asserted is that here Paul is addressing Jesus, evidently in prayer, it's suggested, that I want you to remove this from me. Well, 
I want you to observe something else. Look at the context. You go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and he will say, It was doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to, now listen carefully, visions and revelations of the Lord. Oh, you mean this is similar to what occurred with Stephen. So that Paul is now, and he talks about he was caught up to the third heaven in the end of verse 2. And such a man, whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Oh, you mean Paul was now in a vision in heaven where the Lord is where he could talk to him? Yes. In that sense, that becomes then a parallel to what occurred with Stephen. If Paul is advocating here, praying directly to Jesus and approving of it, then why does he go on in chapter 13 and verse 7, Now I pray to God that you do no evil. If he was saying to pray to Jesus, why does he then turn and say pray to God? Now the question comes up, why has this become an issue? Why are people all of a sudden now saying, well, maybe we need to pray to Jesus? I suggest to you there are several influences, but one of them is probably the denominational influence of the sinner's prayer. I don't know how many of you spend much time reading denominational garbage. For some reason, I do. And you have to to understand what they're saying. But many denominations teach that all you need to do is say the sinner's prayer. And here's the one that's found on Billy Graham's website. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Guide my life. Help me to do your will in your name. Amen. In other words, the prayers to Jesus. You know, that same denominational influence has somehow infected the, the hymns that we sing sometimes. I remember as a child the song, Have a Little Talk with Jesus, Makes It Right. I love the tune of that song. I just wish somebody would write some different words to it. But you see, that kind of, of emphasis placed within the mind this doesn't come from Scripture. This comes from man. I will tell you that some of those who have responded to this by pointing out that the reason why some groups like Jehovah's Witnesses will not pray to Jesus is because they don't believe that He is deity, that He is a member of the Godhead, and that to refuse to pray to Jesus is to refuse to pray to deity. If you want to say that, one, say, why not pray to the Holy Spirit as well? Let me point out to you, there's a difference between singing praise to Jesus, singing praise to the Holy Spirit, and singing praise to the Father than a petition or a prayer. There's a difference between a praise and a prayer. I don't know if that answered everybody's question. There's more, but that's about all I could pack in a short period of time. Question number two, maybe it won't take as long to answer this one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 32, it says, Some were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And as a result, some were weak, sickly, and some slept. That means that they died. Does this happen today if we don't partake 
in a worthy manner? Folks, that's a practical question, and it's a good question. Let me explain my approach in answering this one. I want to look at the context. I want to look at the correct practice. And then finally, the chastisement that is mentioned. If you begin with the context, this was a very serious matter. It's more than just 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because if I go back to chapter 10, I get a little insight into the problem that is developing here. I'm not going to read all this text. I'm going to assume that maybe you will have time. But he begins by fleeing from idolatry. And he will talk about the communion that we partake of is a communion with the body and with the blood of Christ. He points out that when you look at those people in verse 18 who were under the Old Testament, when they participated in the memorial feast, that they were participating with the Lord. And when you get to verse 20, rather the things which a Gentile sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Folks, the people in Corinth were participating in pagan meals that gave honor to Apollo, the honor to Asclepius, the honor to all these other Greek idols. And at the same time, they were partaking of the Lord's Supper as if it had no real meaning whatsoever. But when you get to chapter 11, you see that the problem was bubbling up in the assembly where you have people really who don't understand the, the significance of what they're doing. Beginning with verse 20, Therefore, when you come together into one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Some people were gathering in the assembly and partaking of a meal. And evidently they were treating it to some degree like a, a common meal. Because he asked the question, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And they were not doing it together. They were some doing it at this time, another that time. And there was no significance attached to it. Now, when you get to the correct practice, you get to verse 23, and Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is not secondhand. This is not thirdhand. This is direct revelation. This is the way you're supposed to do it and do it correctly. What he points out is, is that the bread represents the body of the Lord. Take it, eat, do this in remembrance of me. After that, he took the cup. After he had given thanks, he said, Do this in remembrance of me. The wine, the fruit of the vine, represented the blood of Christ. He said, In remembrance. In doing this, the church has both an outward feature to it and an inward one. The outward feature, he says, You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. When people see us partake of the Lord's Supper, they know that we're taking these emblems to recognize his body and his blood. 
that means it's to say something to somebody else. But there's also an inward aspect that a person is to examine themselves. I want to look at verses 27 through 29. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man so examine himself and let him eat of this bread and drink of this cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That means if a person is taking of the bread and they're taking of the fruit of the vine and they're not thinking about the Lord, their mind's not engaged, they're not discerning the Lord's body, they're eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Which brings me to the important aspect, the third part, which is really the key element of the question. And that is they were judged unfaithful and therefore chastised. In fact, that's the word he uses. Look with me at verses 30 through 32. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. You see that key word, chastened, there? The word chastened, or chastisement. What's it for? Some people think it's just punishment. No, that's not. The word chasten indicates some instruction, some teaching that is done by the infliction of something that is painful. In chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father did not chasten? Every one of you can look and say, My parents, particularly my father, chastened me because he wanted to make me a better person. Verse 10, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. There's a motivation behind this, folks. And the reason why, going back to verse 32, is God doesn't want us to be condemned with the world. Now here's the key element of the question that focuses. If this is chastisement, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32 says it is, if it is to train us and to make us better, then I've got to know that this is the chastisement from God. Listen to Hebrews twelve eleven. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit to those who've been trained by it. In other words, I learned something from it. You know, there's a child about to stick their hand with a key into a light or into a wall receptacle. And the parent goes, stop that. And the child cries. You inflicted pain. But the reason why you did that is because you love that child. That child knows when the mom and daddy says, don't you do that, you don't do that. If these people did not know that this sickness... This weakness, this death was the result of 
their sinful behavior, then it would not have had benefit. So that brings me to the question today. Does God do that today? If that in their day was observably wrong and sinful and they knew that their chastisement was being punished, it wouldn't be the same today because how would we know that if all of a sudden I came down sick, that this is a result that Sunday morning the Lord's Supper was passed, I took the bread, I took the fruit of the vine, but I was thinking about the ball game or I was thinking about preparing lunch or my mind was wandering. How would I know that that was the case? In this case, you have an inspired apostle who's telling them that this is the case. And you say, well, does that let me off the hook? Oh, no, it doesn't. You are still drinking judgment to yourself. And will God allow you sometimes to suffer for the consequences of your sin? Absolutely. But we need to make sure that we're not taking the word chastisement here and not learning something from it. We ought to be concerned with trying to worship God as correct as possible. You know, whether it's the prayers that we pray or the Lord's Supper which we partake, I need to make sure that my mind, my heart is in the right place. It's focused so that when I'm singing the songs, I'm thinking about the words. And when we're praying a prayer, I'm thinking about what is being prayed to the Father. And when I am... Partaking of the Lord's Supper, my mind is focused on that body and the blood because we don't want our worship rejected. Matthew 15 and verse 9, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And if we love God, we'll do what he tells us to do and it won't be a problem. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I hope that our study together tonight has been edifying and encouraging. I hope it has dealt with the scriptures as God would want them to be dealt with first and foremost. Tonight, if you are not a Christian, this is a wonderful opportunity. There's everything prepared for you. The Lord's waiting. The Lord's wanting. And if you will respond by coming forward and being baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you're a Christian struggling with sin, we can pray with you. Would you come while we stand and sing?